0: You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, we have gone through the entire book of First Corinthians, and this is the very last sermon on Messy Grace. We have gone from chapter 1. Today, we're ending with chapter 16. We have done verse by verse through the entire book of First Corinthians. What's interesting about Corinthians, it is the group of people in the New Testament that Paul wrote to more than anybody else. Think about this for a second. 1st and 2nd Corinthians are the second and third longest books in or letters in the entire New Testament. He wrote them four times. We only have two of them. And uh, both of the Corinthians combined are larger than any other letter in the entire New Testament and not including the ones that we don't have that he wrote to them. So he wrote a lot them. They were a church that just was struggling so much to live for Christ in the midst of their community. Corinth was kind of like a a modern day uh, or an ancient version of our modern day Las Vegas. It was a port city. It was a a destination city. It was lots of sports, lots of uh, Trade and uh, this a big temple. Their mascot was a sex goddess named Aphrodite, and so it was it was a town that really struggled culturally to to walk in faith with Christ when you became a Christian. So Paul began to hear word about their struggle, and he wrote letters to them to encourage them. And actually, this letter is the second of four letters that he wrote. And the entire thing is corrective. He's trying to correct their craziness. And what we have now is the very last section, as he's trying to correct their their recklessness in their life. Um, here's an overview of the of the whole book. You might even want to take a picture of it, take a look at it later, because I'm not going to walk you through it. But basically, it was broken up into five sections, with each section addressing different issues, dealing with um, unity, as you can see, dealing with uh, their personal life, there's their public life, their personal life, then their their interaction with each other, and then their church life and then the afterlife so he talked about it all because they were just getting all screwy and upside down about all kinds of things and then we have chapter 16. It's kind of like until we meet again. This is the last few comments but it actually gives us a lot of meat in these few uh, verses here in the last chapter so we're going to wrap up with chapter 16. I wanna tell you something. Would you agree that if the Bible talks about something a lot, it's important? Would you agree with that? Yeah, so like if, if it talks a lot about, for example, the kingdom of God, then that's an important thing and we should know and grow in that. Would you agree with that? Well, for example, there are 500 verses in the New Testament dealing with prayer alone. So that would tell you that it's, that it's something you should learn correct? It tells you something that, that you should maybe uh, grow in, and it, uh, God has a lot to say about this. Um, there are just under 500 verses dealing with faith in the New Testament. So that would be, that would be something that would tell you that you, this is something you need to know. This is something important. Um, but did you know When it comes to money and material possessions, there's over 2,000 verses in the New Testament dealing with our money and material possessions. Now, we often avoid this issue, and paul, as he 's wrapping up this letter he he surface touches on something that we 're going to touch on before we get to part two of the sermon, which is is uh, understanding god 's will for your life, but he he kind of deals with some family business up front, and so today we 're going to look at one of those two thousand verses about our material possessions and our giving, and because really. The reason why God talks a lot about it because this is a heart issue, and this is something that's front and center in the Bible because we are uh, we make an idol out of our possessions and out of our money, and we we white knuckle everything that we have, and we we claim to give God everything, but yet we hold the heart issue of our possessions. To ourselves. So Paul is going to address something in about four verses. This is one out of 2,000 different verses in the New Testament dealing with this. So let's take a look at it. One out of 2,000. Chapter 16, verse 1, he says, now about the collection of the Lord's people or for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So he's saying, follow the example of a church that I respect, uh, of of a church that you should respect. So follow the example of the Galatian churches. On the first day of every week, each of you, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then... When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to do, uh, I will go also uh, and they will accompany me. And then he moves on to another topic. What I want to do is I want to take a, a couple of minutes before we move on to how to understand God's will for your life and talk about these interesting little verses right here. First of all, um, God has called us to live a generous life. I've got some verses in your notes. Uh, I want to encourage you maybe to take some time this week and go through those passages, how God has challenged us there. Again, there's over 2,000 in the New Testament alone that talk to us about how to live a generous life. And there's a principle in the Old Testament called the tithe. Anybody ever heard of that before? Anybody heard of the tithe before? And most of us, if you've been in church for at least a year, you've probably heard of the idea of the tithe. I want to talk for a second just about what that ancient tithe meant and kind of share with you a little bit about what Paul was saying and about how we do things before we talk about understanding God's will for our life in the next passages. This is the ancient tithe. First of all, it was a family responsibility. See, Paul is dealing with a family issue. He's not writing to, to unbelievers. He's not writing to, to the world. He's, he's writing to Christians about family responsibility. And the, the idea of generosity and tithing was a family responsibility. Everybody in the family participated. It wasn't just dads, it wasn't just moms, it wasn't just the husband or the wife or just the parents or just the kids. It was a family responsibility as we look at it in the Old Testament and in the new testament and also the word tithe if i were to ask you some of you say well it means 10% well you're half right because tithe means first 10% and the the thing about the ancient tithe is that it's the best not the leftovers so when we give to god the principle is it's the top portion of our resources and we often combine the word tithe and offerings you know we do it here it's time to for our tithe and offerings and we we barely ever mention it this is what's great about by the way preaching through the bible when you preach through the bible you hit everything right so you're like why are we talking about money well two things two thousand verses in the new testament about it and we're preaching through the bible and when the bible talks about it we're gonna talk about it so Chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, talk about it. So that's why we're talking about it, all right? And, and God says that there is this family responsibility that we have to this, and it's not the leftovers. And we often combine tithe and offerings, but it's actually two separate things. The tithe is the first 10%, and the offerings were anything led after that that we want to worship God with. Free will gifts above that amount. It's also based in the ancient side, based on what God provided. For example, uh, God has called what's called the 10% or the tithe for everyone. So so regardless of, of whether you make $20 or $2,000, we all have an equal part to play in the family responsibility because we give to each of us as God has provided. By the way, I just want you to know that we we don't, Preach the tithe here the way the churches preach it at other places because they're like a lot of churches. You've ever been to church, they talk about the tithe you need to give your tithe, you need to give 10%, you need to give 10%, and they always quote Old Testament passages. I'm gonna be honest with you uh, the tithe in the Old Testament was actually 33%. There was a 10% tithe to the temple, a 10% tithe to support the priests, and there was a 10% tithe for the poor. And then there was all of the agricultural farmers were to round out their crops and leave the corners unharvested, called a gleaning for all foreigners and those that were traveling through to provide for them. So it was an offering to the Lord to, to, to leave their crops rounded off as a gleaning. So that averaged about 33% for the average Jewish person. So if you go to a church and they're like, you need the tithe, you need the tithe, you need the tithe, and they're using Old Testament passages, then technically we would all be giving 33%. But the principle in the New Testament is different. The principle in the New Testament is different. I'll come back to the next one. But in the New Testament, it's a picture of giving all that we have. And that the tithe is not the ceiling which we hope to reach one day. It's the floor on which we walk. It begins our journey of generosity. That's how the New Testament operates. And by the way, we give, and this is why we give the ancient tithe, we give to support the kingdom ministry, uh, the temple, the priests, the poor. Um, This was how God uh, functioned and operated and fulfilled the mission of God on the earth through the people of God collectively. But here's what's happened. The tithe has become a tip and so Paul is actually addressing their issue of tipping God. And this is how the tithe has become a tip. Generosity has become an option instead of an obligation. We all have a family responsibility if you're a Christian. The, what we've turned it into is an optional amount, like a tip. You know, some, I talk to some pastors and they always have their offering before the sermon. Uh, we just do it after so that we can have a flow out of our worship into the preaching and just kind of not, wor- you know, just kind of, we put it at the end and just trust if you're part of our family that you're just going to be faithful in it. We don't hardly talk about it. But a lot of pastors, they do it before the sermon because they know that some of their people give according to how good the sermon is. And it's like tipping the pastor. Well, I'm glad that you don't think like that, but a lot of churches, it's an optional amount. 10%, ah, here's 2%. Here's 1%. Here's what I have. Sometimes they give, sometimes they don't. And usually you think, well, that's not my part. I'm not as well off as the person next to me. And so it's optional for me. Uh, Did you know the average Christian gives 2.5% to their church. It has become a tip for most believers. Shockingly, it was never meant to be optional. In fact, uh, Psalms 37 says that a reflection of our uh, trust in God is, is based upon our generosity. Here's another thing that tithe has become a tip. Uh, it's become a tip because there's an emotional response instead of a spiritual discipline that has been developed. A lot of us, you give to what you're moved by. You know, if you see a video of, of kids that are starving, well, I'm gonna give to that, not my church. I'm that, they need it more than our church does. And so you're, you move uh, your finances to where you're, you're motivated by your feelings rather than following what God says to do to supply for your local church. And then your offerings are for that above that amount. It, and, and by the way, this is what I love about the Bible. It's never about the dollar, it's about the devotion. It's all about worship. You know, there's nothing wrong with tragedy giving. You know, hurricane comes, earthquakes that happened this past week in California. I'm sure the local churches out there are having all kinds of financial special giving up and above. I know of some that are. And they give special giving to tragedy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But some people, that's the only time you ever give is when your heart is moved. And it's an emotional response rather than a spiritual discipline. Some give to the best fundraiser presentation. You know, there are whole industries that are all about how to raise money. And churches hire fundraising companies to help them to raise funds. Now, we are called to have a spiritual discipline. And here's the last thing. Generosity has become um, something that's based on what's left over. Uh, we we give when it's convenient. We again we give when we happen to have it after our personal needs are met. Some uh, you are spending what belongs to God on yourself, and you're spending what belongs to God even on your own family. When the Bible says this is part of your role as family to serve the kingdom of God, so that we can make an impact in the world. You know, the average church uh, is 95 uh, percent of churches are under a hundred. In 25 people. So that means the majority of churches in the United States just barely make it, just barely struggle. In fact, most churches survive, even the big ones, on 9% of people that give in their church. That means 9% statistically of the church are paying for the ministries of the church while everybody else is is just kind of tagging along. Well, Paul is saying this. He gives a short little passage about our responsibility. So let's take a look at it, and then we're going to talk about how to hear God's will. See, this is such an interesting issue. I'm just watching y'all's faces, and you're like, when is this part going to be over because I'm so uncomfortable? Well... We're uncomfortable because usually this hits right where our heart is at. All right? So let's see what Paul has to say about it. Based on that one out of 2,000 passages, he says this. He says now about the collection for the Lord's people. I want you to know, first of all, this is what giving should be. God has called us to be purposeful givers. We don't just throw our money at whatever's coming across and there's a he he gives a very specific need. He he says the church in Jerusalem is struggling. They're persecuted, they're having a hard time getting a job. This is the city where Jesus was put to the cross and the apostles are there and they're just struggling to survive. In fact, they're struggling so bad they're living communally. That means they're living as a group as and they give everything and then they equally disperse it out just to kind of help each other cuz they're super struggling. So Paul would often raise funds for the Jerusalem church, and he would take up offerings and then take it back to Jerusalem to support the apostles. And he says, when our giving, when it comes time to give, have a purpose for it, have a meaning for it. We give that uh, opportunity uh, by saying, by trusting that, that what we give to is purposeful. I mean, we're, 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 I'm not driving in a Lamborghini, you know, and we're not living in a big fancy house. Our giving is not going to support my lifestyle, but it literally goes into the ministries of our church, into helping our kids get to camp, to our Honduras mission trip, which is later this month, to the missionaries that we support. It goes to our rent so that we can meet here weekly and bring your friends so that the gospel can be preached. It's purposeful and our giving should be with purpose. And then he says, verse two, he says, on the first day of the week, that means it should be we should be regular givers. Sunday, regularly, make it scheduled and systematic. It is amazing what happens when we plan on something, it gets done. Because if you're thinking about it, when you walk in the door, you probably won't do it. So Paul's like, hey, think ahead. The first day of every week, when you get together, be prepared, be ready. You know, every gym is filled in January. But come July, they just don't have the plan anymore. So I want to encourage you guys, we give that opportunity every Sunday because that's biblical. All right? And then he goes on, verse 2, he says... On the first day of the week, each one. That means we should be universal givers. This is not for the 9%. This is not for just a handful of people. This is this is for everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is for you. You're part of the each one. God has called all of us to be generous, and, and not just a select few. And then he goes on to say, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That means we should all be proportionate givers. What I like about this is that we all have an equal part to play in the kingdom. We all have an equal part that we give. Again, it's about our devotion, not the dollar. It's not about I give this much and you give this much. We each have a part to play that's proportional to what we have come in. The more you are blessed or the more we become, then the more generous you should become. That's just... But it's you, know, it's you know who the worst givers in, in, in America are? Are you ready? The worst givers are people who are above the middle income bracket. The wealthier uh, amount of people, the, the top 20 to 30% of America are the least likely to give proportionally. Now they give numerically what it seems like a lot because they make a lot, but they give the least proportionally. So you have those in the middle income there who are the the most generous givers in America. They usually give only 2.5%, but they tend to be the most generous giving sacrificially. Here's what he goes on to say, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And I like this, we are to be intentional givers. We are to plan ahead on our giving, and you know what happens a lot of times, I'll be honest with you, you know, we we have a monthly budget, and I put in our worship guide a little amount, like what comes in last week and the last two weeks, and you you might see that, and you're like, oh man, that's too bad, Uh, (laughs) but I tell you what, if we all uh, were intentional about this, we would never have to play catch up. We'd never have to play makeup. We'd never have to go, hey, we're really struggling this month. And, you know, uh, we would never have to pep talk. We would just say, hey, it's time to give. And we do it because that's what family does. We trust that our believers will do that, that it will be intentional, that our family will do that. And then he goes on. This is the last thing. He says, then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift. That means we need to be trusting givers. You see, they gave it to a group of people who they trusted would put it and take it where it was supposed to go. And a lot of times we give with strings attached. Well, I want to know exactly where every single dollar goes, and and, and I totally understand that. If and, and we are an open book at our church, and we will tell you where every single uh, penny goes, we have no problems with that. But if but if you don't give unless you get that information, then you're you're not being a cheerful giver. You're also being someone who's very untrusting. Paul says, "Hey, listen, you know if you obey God in this area, we're going to delegate some guys, and they didn't just have to take it to." another room and then deposit in the bank and pay the bills like we do, um, they actually had to give it to a group of men and then travel like 2,000 miles with not a debit card, not transferred to a bank, but with all that money on their possession and make it all the way to Jerusalem. He says, hey, you know, you got to be willing to trust that what you're giving to will actually be used for what it says. Now, if you find out that it's not, then you want to give, again, back to number one, purposefully to uh, something you can trust. So this is the point. We're going to transition out of this. Why does this matter? Why are we even talking about this? This is why. Because God owns all we have, and our generosity reflects that we understand this, period. Period. If you struggle with generosity and you struggle with giving... It really comes down to a hard issue of do you trust that the Lord is truly in charge of all that you have? See, God doesn't want 10%. He already owns it all. You're just a steward of what he allows you to have. Will you be a good steward with it? Generosity sows the seed of contentment, gratitude, and eternal blessing, and it breaks materialism and comparison off our backs. All right? I love preaching through the Bible because everything is hit. All right. If you have any questions about that, feel free to text me. Uh, my number is in the worship guide. We're going to move on to the last portion of 1 Corinthians. And you guys can smile again now. All right. <laughs> At this point, Paul now gives final personal requests. He did some family business about giving, and now final personal request. And he says this in verse nine. He says, a great door for effective work has opened for me. And what I wanna talk to you about for a minute is that the apostle Paul was right in the middle of God's will. He was in a place where a door of ministry had opened up, and he was serving, and he was seeing fruit, And we have this idea of what being in the middle of God's will is, and Paul is about to blow it out of the water. In these last few verses, what we think about God's will is completely unexpected. So what does he say and what can we learn that reveals us the truth about open doors? Some of you guys, maybe you've been there. If you're a Christian and you're like, how do I know if this is a door that's from God? How do I know if this is an opportunity from God? How do I know if I should do this or not do this? How do I know God's will? What do I do? See, we're so afraid of doing the wrong thing. Paul says, let me, let me tell you how I'm living this out. He says, there's a door God's will, I'm right in the middle of God's will. But this is how he describes it. Check this out. Verse five, he says this. By the way, I just want you to know, the apostle Paul, he's an apostle. He's writing Bible, all right? He, he's writing letters that would become God-breathed, inspired words from God for us. And if there's anybody that had, you would think, the ability to have clarity on God's will would be Paul. I mean, this is a guy who is literally raising people from the dead, seeing miracles, hearing God, writing, he wrote a third of the New Testament, inspired by God. You think, man, if there's anybody that could have some clarity on God's will, it would be this guy. But this is what he says. Verse five, after I go through Macedonia, I will come for you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I, for I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits by the way, this is good this is good man this is the heart of Paul I man no flyby, no drop-in visits I want to I want to really sit and hang out and 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 develop our relationship. I love that about him, but I want you to notice here life in the center of God's will it's not what you expect because look at what he says perhaps I hope to if the Lord permits in the middle of God's will there's a lot of uncertainty. This is your first blank if you're using these notes. You see, the normal Christian experience is not always crystal clear. We think that, man, God is just going to reveal some kind of a plan. He's going to give us a piece of paper that says, do this, then this, then this, and this, and this. And, that you know, we're just going to have some crystal clear clarity that an angel's going to appear at the foot of our bed one night and and leave a note on our desk or tell us with clarity. We're going to hear some kind of audible voice. And Paul's like, you know what? Sometimes being in the middle of God's will is filled with a lot of uncertainty. Perhaps I'll come see you. Perhaps I won't. I'm in the middle of God's will. I can hear God's voice. Maybe I will if the Lord permits. I don't know. Maybe it'll happen. I hope to see, I, but it may not. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. I love this. The reality God's had his best scene in the rearview mirror. See, many of you struggle for clear direction. And it's more like looking in a dirty window than it is looking through a windshield that's clean. Have you ever like, you know, ever been mudding? If you're a guy, maybe a girl that's maybe you've been mudding, at least one of you, a couple. uh, It's a lot of fun. You know, if you're in an ATV or in a truck or a Jeep or something and you get out in this field and there's like mud flying everywhere. The wipers just make it worse. All it does is just... Make sure that there's mud on every single bit of space. And you're like looking at little holes in your truck and it's like, this is a blast, right? And you're just hoping that you don't get stuck, which, you know, a real likelihood that if you go mudding, you probably will, 70% chance that you probably will get stuck, but it's a lot of fun. And see, that's what the will of God really looks like. It's like looking through a mirror that, or a windshield that's just filled with mud. And you can't see. And you're like, where, God, where do I go? It's just getting worse. It's just getting worse. And I pray. And it's like the wipers are just smudging. And you look, I see a hole. God, is this where I'm supposed to go? And then all of a sudden, you get stuck. I like to think of, of uh, hearing God's voice and will for your life. I, I moved here from Indiana. And, and up north, it seemed like there was like a lot of fog in the fall and spring. Just a tremendous amount. And so you'd wake up in the morning and it's, the visibility would just be, you know, Low It'd be terrible. You couldn't see very far at all. So you'd be driving down these country roads out in the middle of, of Indiana or Michigan, and you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see anything. And and you'd have these little dips in the road. And every time you went down, it was below the fog, and you're like, I could see. I can see. And all of a sudden you come back up and you're like, Oh, I can't see. But I know I'm moving in the right direction because when I could see, I saw the sign and it said, This way. See, a lot of times. I think our clarity is in the valley, in the low points. And when we're in the mountaintops, sometimes we're like, God, I thought I was supposed to hear you better here. And he says, listen, you heard me speak in the valley. Keep moving forward. Just stay faithful because there's a lot of uncertainty in the middle of God's will. Paul says, perhaps I will. I don't know. Hope I will. Maybe I'll spend the spring with you. I'd like to, but I'm going to spend the winter here. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Verse 8, he says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. That means the spring. Because, here's the key, a great door for effective work has opened for me. Awesome. Man, I'm going to stay here because God is, man, doing great things. And there are many who oppose me. Here's the second thing about the, being in the center of God's will. Is sometimes there's a lot of powerful opponents in the middle of God's will. He says, man, I'm, I'm in here in Ephesus and, and a, a work has opened up and it is so good. Oh, and there's a lot of people who hate me and there's a lot of people who are trying to stop me, but it is, I'm right in the middle of God's will and, uh, and there's a great work happening, but I'm feeling a tremendous amount of resistance. He doesn't want to bail Because it gets hard. He's saying, it's hard, but man, there's a lot of good stuff happening and it's right where I need to be. Notice a great door is open and yet there's opposition. An open door does not mean that it will always come easy. There are those who will try to stand in the way and stop you and resist you. An open door does not mean smooth sailing. Open doors are not decided by if there is no opposition, but by spiritual fruit. So if you're in the middle of God's will and you're seeing fruit, that's an identification that's right where you're supposed to be, not the opposition. Don't grade God's will by opposition, but by fruit of the ministry that you're part of or that you're doing, all right? So this is what Paul says, and then he goes on to say this. Check out the next thing. He says, when Timothy, which is... Paul's spiritual son, he invests a lot of time, and and Timothy is one of the pastors at Ephesus. He says, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. Why would he be afraid? Why would he be afraid? For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. That means despise him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, why in the world would he say, be nice to Tim? Be nice to Timothy. Hey, I'm sending Timothy. Be nice to him. You know why? Because a lot of people didn't like Timothy. They didn't like his leadership style. They didn't like, you know, how he preached. They didn't like uh, that he wasn't Paul and that he wasn't Apollos. They didn't. So Paul's like, listen, I'm sending a brother in Christ and i want you to be nice to him why you know a lot of people why can't we be like the new testament church well that's the problem we are like the new testament church because they despise timothy they talk negatively about him and and paul is having to correct their bad attitude listen the new testament church generation 1 of christians were a whole lot like us we get this idea that they, like, man, could, like, always hear God's voice and never struggled, never stumbled, always got along, just loved each other all the time. Man, you read the New Testament, there's people just like us. Man, struggling to get along, arguing with each other. Even we have apostles in the New Testament that argued with each other. Paul and Peter had a big fight in front of people, very confrontational, and then they had to later apologize to each other. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter did because he was wrong about how he approached an issue that Paul called him out on. See, we have real life issues in the in the Bible that we're living out today, and he says this: in the middle of God's will, there will be power struggles. There will be power struggles. Even Paul's handpicked leaders, they didn't like; they resisted. Messengers were not always liked or well received. Sometimes Paul would send somebody and they were like, you know what? He's not Apollos. He's not you. He's not the guy who preached before. He's not the same. I don't like how he uses illustrations. I don't, I don't like his style. He's not as good as Ted. Just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> or oh, man, this guy's way better than Ted. See, there's power struggles and people are often looked down on in the church. Paul says, listen, treat him nice. I'm right in the middle of God's will. So is Timothy. He's going to have opposition and power struggles, but he's right in the middle of God's will. And then he goes on to say this, in the middle of God's will, he says now about our brother Apollos. Apollos was a a popular preacher who was in Corinth for a while, and they loved him. They loved him. And then he left and went back to Ephesus, and uh, he's a great teacher. It says this now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers, the other guys that I'm sending, he was quite unwilling to go. So I'm sending him to hell. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says, but he will go when he has the opportunity. He says, like, you know, what? I, I strongly challenged him and encouraged, man, you got to go. They need you. And he was resistant. He refused to go. And he's like, Paul's like, okay, well then then try to go when you can. You know, he just kind of moved on. Here's the thing. When it comes to being in the middle of God's will, there will be disagreements. There will be Paul in the middle of God's will, believing that it was God's will for Apollos to go back to Corinth, and Paul says, I don't want to go. Paul's like, okay, well, you know, God will work it out. There will be disagreements in the middle of God's will. Paul had a game plan. Send Timothy. He had a game plan. Send Apollos. Get them back on track. Corinth was falling apart, so he's sending seasoned ministers to help them. Paulus just didn't want to go. Paul's like, okay, well, I tried. Get there when you get there. I love his attitude when dealing with opposition and disagreements in the middle of God's will. Look at verse 13. He goes on. This is also in the middle of God's will. He says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be courageous. The original says, act like men or be courageous like men. Be strong, do everything in love. He's telling them to be careful, be brave, be mindful. This is the essence of the entire letter in two verses. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Here's what he's saying. In the middle of God's will, one of the greatest things you can do is just be consistent. Be consistent. Consistent. In the middle of God's will, don't let your guard down spiritually. If things are going well, be ready because the enemy is on your heels. In the middle of God's will, when you get opposition, stand firm. See, if we do the right thing, we'll always end up in the right place. But sometimes when we do the right thing, it doesn't feel like the right thing until we see it in the rearview mirror. That it was exactly in the middle of God's will. If you do the right thing, you'll always end up in the right place. Be consistent in doing what you know is right, Paul says. Now, I, I got to reading this and I got to thinking man, when you feel like everything is going great and it's easy sailing, sailing be on your guard because the enemy is seeking you to devour those whom he might find weak. And when you feel like quitting, when you don't feel appreciated, when you don't get the thank yous, and when you feel like you're barely hanging on, put your heels in. Stand firm in your faith. And when you're afraid and when you see what is in front of you doesn't make any sense and it seems impossible, stand strong and be courageous. Be strong. And when you feel attacked and when you feel like everyone is against you and you feel like the opposition is is turning uglier and uglier and people are talking bad about you, he says do everything in love. Be consistent in doing the right thing. And then he ends with this. Verse 15, he says, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And if they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people, he says they were the first ones to give their life to Christ in this community. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, circle this to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refresh my spirit, and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Who are these three guys? These are the three guys that left Corinth, traveled thousands of miles, knocked on the door of Paul's house in Ephesus and said, Paul, things are going crazy in Corinth, and they're straying. Paul gets this word from Stephanus and those two other guys, and he says, all right, I'm going to write a letter, and I want you to send it back. And I want you to go back, and I want you to tell them what I said. And so he writes in the letter, these guys, they came to me and brought word. And now I'm sending them back to you to bring word. And he says, submit to them. This is what you need in the middle of God's will, accountability. Accountability. We talked about this in our men's Bible study yesterday, is that we all need a Stephanus. We all need somebody who's going to call us on the table we all need somebody who's willing to intervene in our reckless and crazy life and to help us get back on track. Now, they refused to hear Stephanus, So Stephanus did the Matthew 18 thing and then went to the church leadership. He took it to Paul and said, Paul, listen, they're not listening to me. They're not listening to anybody. They're going crazy. Paul says, write the letter, send it back. And then he says in the letter, listen to Stephanus. Listen to him. He cares for you. And guys like him who are looking out for you. Guys, listen, in the middle of God's will, there are no lone rangers. If you feel like you can handle this life of Christ on your own, Paul's like, you can't. You need the Stephanus. You need somebody in your life that will call you on the table, correct you, and if necessary, take it to leaders that will then help you to correct your life. He says it's all about being consistent and being in submission to each other as we hold each other accountable. I love this picture. I I, want to play a video for you, and I think this perfectly illustrates how much we need each other. We are better together. Go ahead and play this video here. So as Paul is wrapping up this letter in 1 Corinthians, he's, he's challenging the church. He's challenging the Christians. He's challenging us 2,000 years later that we need each other. We can't run without each other. We need to encourage each other. So he says this, until next time, verse 19, and we're gonna pray. He says, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets in their house. By the way, this is the woman who helped plant the church in Corinth five years earlier, now working with Paul and has a church in her home in in Ephesus. He says, all the brothers and the sisters here send their greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss, which is very customary. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Now, he's not talking about the world. He's talking about if there's someone who says they're a Christian, but yet their life does not authenticate that relationship with Christ, then let God be their judge. And then he says this, one of the most famous phrases in the entire New Testament is the word, come Lord. That's the word Maranatha. Everybody say Maranatha. He's, he he ends this uh, this letter with a beautiful, beautiful little phrase that is one of the first catchphrases of the church, and it still is today, and it's the word Maranatha, and that means, come, Lord Jesus. Powerful one. Come, O Lord. He has a wait for the return of Christ, and then he says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, my love to all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he says three things as we wrap it up. is these three things. Says, number one, walk in generosity. Number two, walk in God's will. And number three, keep looking to Jesus. I love this. So as we pray, I want to encourage you guys. We went through the whole letter. For those of you that didn't miss one, you went through the whole letter. And uh, if you missed one, they're all online. And And I want to end with that passage that he says earlier. In verse 13, he says this. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. And until next time, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. I want to pray for you now. God, I thank you, Lord, that you're here right now. And God, I thank you, Lord, that, that you gave us the gift of each other. And that God, each one of us is, is a gift to the person sitting next to us. And Father, I pray that as, as you perhaps spoke uh, conviction to our hearts through the, through the letter, I pray that you would help us to apply now those things. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know your love for them, your great care for them, your, your heart for them, God, I pray, Lord, that they would know today. God, you did come to us in Jesus Christ and gave your life so that we could walk with you. And these letters are a reflection of of people just like us, Lord, just trying to walk with you. And God, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would know they don't have to be perfect. They just have to be broken. They don't have to be sinless, but they have to be willing to lay down their sin. God, I thank you, Lord, that God, regardless of our past, regardless of what we've done your grace and your forgiveness and your blood is enough to cover it all and because you live we will live again so if that's you today and you're saying you know what i think today's the day today's the day i want to say yes to jesus i want to lead you in a simple prayer that's that's really a confession of your heart you can use your own words you don't have to say exactly what i'm saying But if this is you today, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer or something like it as we pray together. Let's all pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to the cross to bear my sin. Forgive me. I give you my life. I follow you, Jesus. Because you are alive. Live in me. Show me how to walk with you. It may not be perfect, but God, I'm I'm, I'm broken, and I'm willing to follow. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.